for about a half a second, I thought I was off the hook this morning. I thought, oh, Brian's getting up to speak. Great. Okay. We'll save this for another day. Well, it's really good to be here with you. And I don't know about you, but it's my sense, as Brian said, you know, I've been here a while and it's my sense that the Holy Spirit is doing something really, really great, really special and wonderful in our midst. And it's different, but I really feel like we have the opportunity to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and to be part of a movement of something that he's doing here in in this place. And, you know, I I was reading um, this week a little memoir of a guy named George Mueller. You ever heard of George Mueller? Probably so. He was famous as a man of God and a man of prayer in the 1800s because he decided to establish an orphan house. He ultimately established several, about 1,200 kids, I think. But he determined that he would not ask any human being for anything. He would only pray. So God just flourished this work. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me as I was looking at his writing is he said, the spirit and the word must be combined in our lives. He said, if, if I just look to the spirit and am not in the word, I'm subject to delusion. And that can happen. And on the other hand, if I'm just in the word, but the spirit is not applying it, I'm not being transformed. You know, those two have to get, go together. And in these times, um, as Brian said, as, as, as the teaching team here, our prayer is that the spirit and the word would be combined in these times, that we would be transformed by the word. And that's, that, that's our goal. So as Brian said, we are in uh, going through section by section. We're in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. And uh, you can see the question up there. You probably recognize this question. Jesus said at one point to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And I want to give a little bit of background as far as where this happened and what was kind of going on logistically at the time. So this conversation took place in a, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it wasn't always known by that name, but basically this place was about 30 miles northeast of where Jesus' ministry center was around the, the north shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee. So if we were all to leave today and go out to 29 and walk up 29, 30 miles would be Lovingston. You guys know where Lovingston is? You know, and we think, oh, it's just a little bit up the road, 30 minutes. No, it's a 12 to 14 hour walk if you're walking. So what was Jesus doing up in Caesarea Philippi? This was a Gentile area. This was a non-Jewish area. Well, you remember last week, Brian was speaking and he talked about Herod Antipas. There's a whole bunch of Herods floating around. This Herod Antipas was the guy who was over Galilee. He was over Jesus' home district. And he had heard rumors about Jesus, that he was John the Baptist that had come back from the dead and so forth. And he said, I've heard about this guy. I want to I see him. I want to find him. 
So Herod was looking for Jesus. So during this period of Jesus' ministry, you'll notice if you compare all the Gospels together, he was out of Galilee a lot. And probably the reason was because of that, that Herod was, was looking for him. So uh, this is the place where this event happened. And um, so we're going to start by just reading through the passage. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. First thing to notice here, Jesus was praying alone. In Luke 5.16, Luke says that Jesus frequently went out to the wilderness by himself to pray. In fact, throughout Luke, you'll notice that there's this emphasis consistently through the book on Jesus' prayer life. For instance, at Jesus' baptism, it was Luke that notes that when the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, remember that? Luke says it was while he was praying, while Jesus was praying. And then Luke notices that the day that Jesus chose the 12 disciples, that the entire night before that, that Jesus spent that time in prayer. Next week is going to be the transfiguration. And again, Luke notices that Jesus is praying when all of this happens. So, so let me ask you a question. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was intuitively aware of what the Father was doing all the time. It seemed like he always knew what to do, right, when you, when you look at his life. So why did he need dedicated times of prayer? I mean, he already knew what the Father was up to. There was He didn't have sin in his life like we do that's sort of this static where we don't know what God's doing a lot of times. He didn't have that. So why was he doing that if he was the son of God? Well, it's really a beautiful picture. Jesus was fully human. He didn't cut any corners. He could have said, hey, you know, prayer is something I'm going to teach you guys. I don't really need that myself because I've got this kind of special relationship with God. I'm the son of God. No, he didn't do that. He fully participated in our humanity. He modeled the things that we need to do. So we can look at Jesus' life and say, this is what it looks like when a human being is a man of God. And we can follow that. So he's praying. The disciples were with him. And he turns to the disciples and says, okay, um, who do the people say that I am? And the word for people there is like crowd. Who did the multitude? Who are they saying that I am? So is Jesus asking this because he didn't know? Probably not. He had heard the rumors. Probably that's the reason he was out, out of Galilee. But like any good teacher, he's going to involve his students and get them to participate. So you can kind of picture the disciple, at least me, I'm thinking, 
wow, usually it's disciples asking questions. So Jesus asked them a question, and they're probably like little kids in a class raising their hand. Hey, John the Baptist, others say this, others say that. They finally get to answer a question that Jesus is asking them. And the answer is this exact, almost word-for-word rumor that Herod Antipas had heard about Jesus. You know, Jesus was doing things, and Brian has been saying this along the way, Jesus was doing things that had, ne- had not been seen in a long, long time. He was doing things that the prophets of old did, people like Elijah and Elisha. Feeding the 5,000 makes me think about Moses and the manna in the wilderness, right? So they answer the question. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So this is the question. Who do you say that I am? I think it's possible that this could turn out to be the most momentous question in all of human history. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? What is his identity? You know, our faith is not based upon, oh, I'm believing in these concepts, I'm believing in these ideas, I'm believing in this theology. Our faith rests upon a person. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. That sits at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness is possible because of who Jesus is, that he came as the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he he was the only one qualified to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, and anybody that believes in him will receive forgiveness. That's only possible because of his identity. Jesus talked about eternal life. Well, he rose from the grave. We don't believe in a Jesus who's still in a grave, but somebody said, well, yeah, but his spirit is alive. You know, and, we're, and our spirit's going to be like his spirit because his spirit. Jesus physically, literally rose from the grave. The tomb is empty. That's the basis of our faith. Our faith is rooted in events, in things that Jesus did on this earth, literally. And that means that our faith is rooted in his identity, who he really was. And the resurrection is the proof that what he said about himself is true. It'd be a little bit difficult, wouldn't it, to believe in someone for eternal life that wasn't able to have that for himself? In other words, death conquered Jesus, but oh, he's going to give eternal life to everybody? No, the resurrection, this event, Jesus' identity is at the very heart of everything that we believe. So he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly, speaks up on behalf of everybody else, says the Christ of God. So the word Christ, you know, we, Jesus Christ, uh, most of us know that that means Messiah. Christ is the the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. 
And it means anointed or anointed one. So what's that? What's, what's that all about? Well, <clears throat> it takes us back to Israel at the time of the kings. Because remember the first king of Israel, his name was Saul. Samuel, the prophet, anointed Saul as king. So Saul was the Lord's anointed. And then David became the Lord's anointed. And so this became kind of a practice in the kingly process of the king being the anointed of the Lord. Well, as we all know, Israel fell into misery and into idolatry. And the Assyrians and then the Babylonians came in and took away their freedom. And so then the prophets began talking about an anointed one, Messiah, that was going to come and set everything right. So, so this word Messiah started out as just anoint, meaning anointed, but it took on a bigger meaning. It took on a more important meaning that the prophets were saying an anointed one is going to come that's going to set everything right. So Peter is saying, you are the anointed one, the one that the prophets talked about. And Jesus warns them and instructs them not to tell anyone. So implicit in that is Jesus is saying, correct. Um, and so, um, and then he says, it says, he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. So those two things are connected. That idea of him instructing them not to tell anyone, and then the next thing that he says. So what does he say? He says, the Son of Man's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. He's going to be killed and raised up on the third day. So Jesus is predicting his, his suffering and death, and he's saying to Peter and to the twelve, the Messiah isn't what you think. It isn't the idea that you have in mind. This, you know, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah because this isn't what's going to happen. What you think about me taking over Rome isn't going to happen. This is what's going to happen. So Jesus makes this statement about his future that is as clear as a bell. Is there any, is there any question about what's going to happen there? I mean, how clear is that? Why couldn't the disciples hear that? That's a really good question, isn't it? Why couldn't the disciples understand and process this? Right up until the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, you know what they were doing? They were still arguing over who was going to be the greatest. <laughs> that was their ongoing argument. And the reason for that argument was they, they thought, okay, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, I'm going to be number two, or I'm number three. Well, wait, no, I'm number two. You know, they were fighting over that idea because they thought the kingdom was going to happen then. Jesus tells them what's going to happen here, but right up until the very end, they couldn't process it. They couldn't hear it. You know, our expectations can create a blindness to what God is actually doing. Jesus' path that he talks about here was the exact opposite of what they thought. The exact opposite. So my question is, 
what are my expectations of what God is doing, of what God is going to do, of how God is working in my life? What are my expectations that are causing a blindness in me to what God is actually doing or wanting to do? How about us as a body? You know, we're entering this new season, a lot of change. What are our expectations of this new season here at Grace? How do we maintain an openness to God to be able to hear him, to be able to pay attention? So when Jesus says this, why weren't these guys saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, can you explain this to me a little bit more? This isn't what I thought. None of them did that. Peter rebuked him for saying this. How do we maintain an openness as individuals, as a body, to, to what God is doing instead of having these preconceived ideas that blind us? Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, by the way, that means that he was talking to the disciples. There was a crowd there also. Everywhere Jesus went, seemingly there was a crowd. So he's turning now to the crowd. He's saying to them all, and this, this is crystal clear in Matthew and Mark. He's talking now to the multitude. So he's saying these words. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Wow. So he's saying this, these words to the crowd. And I don't know about you, but to me, those are kind of difficult words. You know, this whole idea of self-denial and taking up the cross, you know, how are we going to sort of process that? I mean, some of this is, oh, I'm... I'm the world's best at self-denial. You know, you kind of got to be suspicious of that person a little bit. You know, it's something that like, how much is enough and, and, and what are we supposed to do to get this right? And how does this whole thing work? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we, we have to take Jesus' words together. In other words, all of his teachings need to be looked at together as a whole. And in order to do that, we have to look at what the context was of who he was talking to. So he's talking to this crowd. What were the expectations of the crowd about him and about following him? He had just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. Then after that, he fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. He was healing people. You can imagine that many people in the crowd were there for what they were going to get out of this deal. Hey, this is, let's get on this bandwagon. I mean, this is great. We can follow this guy. He knows how to make bread. Uh, you know, the, everything's going to be good. Th there was this idea of self, that this is about me and about Jesus meeting my needs, and that's what following Jesus is all about. So I think that, that it's important to realize that this statement was probably, in Jesus' mind, a corrective to that. He's saying to the crowd, look, I know what you're thinking, that this is the reason that you're following me, but this is really what it's all about. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, <clears throat> he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
So what can we say then about self-denial in the proper sort of context? Well, a few things come to mind. First of all, self-denial should not be for a believer an end in itself. Because Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. So the self-denial is in the process of following Jesus. It's things that we may need to do along the way in order to follow him. It isn't just, okay, I'm just going to generally deny myself because that's a good thing in and of itself. And sometimes in church history, you know, people have gotten that way where self-denial becomes almost a morbid kind of thing. But it's something that's in the process of following Jesus. It also is the same thing that Jesus himself is doing. This is what Jesus is up to. This is how Jesus lives. So he's saying, look, you're going to pattern yourself after me. You're following me, and you're going to do the same things that I'm doing, and I'm not serving myself. I'm, I'm, I'm denying myself in order for the Father's purposes to be accomplished. What self-denial does, if we practice it, and it has to be practiced, we have to be able to say no to our own agenda in order to choose Jesus' agenda, right? And it's a million little decisions throughout the day. It's a consciousness of Jesus and what he's doing. It's that connection with him. And so what it does is it gives me the ability to listen, the ability to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not walking through life with blinders on, only looking at my agenda, at my own stuff. I'm thinking... Lord, what are you doing in this situation? Is there something that I need to be aware of? Is there something that you can use me to bless other people? That's the kind of mentality that really is walking with Jesus. And it does require practice. If I spend my whole life only doing the things that I want to do, period. And then Jesus says, hey, Jim, you know, I've got something for you to do. How am I going to be able to do that? I can't. I won't because I'm out of practice. You know, it takes time. As Mark Fesmeyer, you know, famous example that he always gave, he says, you don't learn to play baseball against a professional pitcher in a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. <laughs> That's not a good place to start. Let's start with 30 and try to hit, you know, make contact. So what about this idea of take up the cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? Well, the fact that he says take up the cross daily is a clue that this is a metaphor. Because if it was a literal statement, a person doesn't take up a cross daily because they're dead at the end of the first day, right? So this is a, a metaphor. And I don't know how, it's hard to know what the people at that time thought about crucifixion and what they knew. But we can only think that that okay, crucifixion was not only a painful way to die, terrible way to die, but it was also a public humiliation. That person had the crime up above their head. They were hanging out there in public. They were exposed. They were ridiculed. And so their reputation as a person was destroyed. It was toast. They became, yeah, that's that thief or whatever it was. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is is that 
we need to be willing to let go of our fondness of earthly popularity or reputation that, oh, you know, I'm a very sophisticated person. And, uh, you know, in other words, a pride in, in, our, in, in our accomplishments and the things that we have done here. We need to be willing to let that go. And then there's a paradox here that he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. <clears throat> um, these people that Jesus was talking to, uh, they weren't aware of it, probably, but there was this huge hostility toward Jesus, right? There was a lot of hostility towards him. And so I think a little bit of this is kind of a fair warning, you know. You're, this is not going to be easy. This is a life and death thing. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, you know, your life may be on the line for following me. And then this last phrase, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Those are actually business terms. They're mercantile terms. They're terms that would be common at the market there. You know, profit and loss or forfeit. And so Jesus is talking about the relative value of things. What is the greater gain? And, and, and I love his parable about the treasure in the field. Remember that one? I think that's a really good parable in the context of these comments for us, for, for, in the context of this passage, for us to keep that parable in mind. Remember how it goes? That a guy goes out there in a field and he, and, he, and he stumbles on this incredible hidden treasure. And so he goes and sells everything he's got to buy that field. So the question is, well, when he sold everything that he had, is that self-denial? Yeah, I guess it is. You're getting rid of all your stuff. You know, you're saying no to all your precious belongings. That is sort of self-denial. But there's a greater value. He's doing it because of the greater value. And Jesus himself, remember Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus had the same value in his mind. He's looking ahead to eternity. He's looking ahead to spending eternity with his people that he saves and redeems from this earth. And then the last part of this passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is painting a scene, right? The Son of Man is coming in his glory. The glory of the Father is there. The glory of the holy angels is there. There's a lot of glory going on. This is an incredible, magnificent scene that we probably can't even imagine in our wildest dreams. And you know, in that time, when Jesus' glory and the Father's glory is manifested, what's going to happen is people are going to come forward. And you know, there's this amazing word that Jesus has well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
this word of affirmation for those that have walked with him. And I'm just guessing, you know, what is he talking about here? That maybe there are some who have been in their lifetime ashamed to name the name of Jesus, have been silent, have been unwilling to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. The person is quiet about his relationship or her relationship with Jesus. And so in this great scene, it's kind of sad because Jesus is quiet about the person. And I don't know about you, but that makes me think like, okay, I really, I really want to make sure that I am the same person in every place, right? I'm not one person here when we're gathering on Sunday morning and then a different person somewhere else. I want to be the same. If my impulse is to pray about something, then I want to pray with whoever's there. I, you know, if, I, if I'm excited about something Jesus is doing, I want to talk about that. I don't want to hide it. Sometimes we think of witnessing as almost like a sales process. It's not. Witnessing is a natural expression of who we are in Jesus. And you know what? It's infectious. It really is. Um, you know, I think it's so cool that the tax collectors enjoyed being around Jesus. What? These guys, they were doing a lot of dishonest stuff, but they enjoyed being around him. And wouldn't you think that they would be saying, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is the holiest man who has ever lived, which he is and was. He's, you know, the son of God. I can't be near this guy. I've got to be away from him. No. They were comfortable being with Jesus. They enjoyed being with him. His presence was infectious. It was natural. This is what we need to be striving for, is to be the same person in every place, to be people who love Jesus and who are, have an infectious love for him that other people can catch. You know, you can tell somebody something, but if they catch it from you, it's a whole different level. And then he says, at the end, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Okay, what's that all about? <clears throat> well, there, nobody knows, <laughs> basically. Uh, everybody has a different opinion about it. Okay, some people say, yeah, it's the transfiguration. That's when the kingdom of God was manifested. That's possible. Some people say it's the resurrection. That's when the kingdom of God really was manifested. Some people say that it's the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. That's possible. That's a good answer. Uh, some, say, some say that it's the accomplishments of the early church. We don't know what Jesus had in mind when he said this, but there's one thing that is for sure. The most important thing about what Jesus said here is that for us, at this time and place, the kingdom of God has started rolling. Whether it was 
the transfiguration, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't really matter. For us, the kingdom of God is rolling and going and moving forward. God has determined, you know what? I'm, going to, I'm taking this place back. I'm taking back what's mine. And I'm taking with me people that want to be with me forever and ever. And we get to be a part of it. Through the Spirit and through the Word, we get to be a part of it. And so it makes me think, myself, you know, okay, what am I giving my time to? Where's my focus? What are the things that I, is there anything I'm saying no to for myself that my time might be used better elsewhere? You know, these are small things. Walking with Jesus is a hundred little decisions throughout the day, isn't it? Right? It's just a lot of little tiny decisions. But you know, I believe that the small decisions that you and I make today to follow Jesus, that one day those decisions are going to tower over everything else that we do. We think that what's most important is, you know, whether it's my job or my bank account or this or that. We think those things are important. The little decisions that you make to say maybe no to something and yes to something, especially the yes part. Yes, Lord, I'm going to stop what I'm doing because this person, I need to talk to this person. Yes, Lord, I, I, I think you're moving me to do this or that. There's those little decisions are going to tower over everything else in our lives on that final day. And so, let's recommit ourselves. Let's, let's recommit ourselves to what is the Word has been teaching us today. To pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing. To listen to Him. To be sensitive and, and, and to practice being able to say no to my own agenda and a willingness to say yes to what Jesus is doing in my life. So let, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I can only say thank you for your mercy and grace that covers a multitude of sins. Lord, you, you know that we want to follow you and we stumble in many ways. But I pray, Lord, that our resolve would be firm, that we are going to do those things that you are giving us to do, those things that are pleasing to you, that we are going to walk with you, that we will share joy with you and difficult times with you and persevere on the path that you've laid out for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.